last week, we were on vacation visiting our kids out in Maryland. And one of the uh, highlights of the trip was I got to watch kindergarten soccer. Now think about that, please, for just a minute. If you care anything about the sport, it's just painful. <laughs> As a majority of those kindergartners were just sort of standing around watching or going in the wrong direction or kicking the ball in the wrong direction or just all manner of painful things. It made me think of one of my most frustrating things to do and that's go to t-ball. Especially when the second baseman is sitting in the dirt <laughs> making figures. There's something about it if we care about a sport if we're going to play it, it's like, let's take this seriously. Um, it's frustrating to watch someone who's not trying in a sport, especially if it's a sport we care about. I always want to, you know, if you're going to play, play the game. Be serious about it. Um, Don't tell Siri to be serious about it. <laughs> Maybe I'm not supposed to preach today. I... Her answer was, I'm always serious. <laughs> I can't even get rid of her. Gosh. There. Okay, we're going to try and go to 1 Corinthians. Because Paul gives us a challenge for us as Christians. And he uses a sports analogy. And that's why I wanted to talk about t-ball and things like that and how serious we are about playing the game. But he begins at the end of chapter 9 and then we're going to look today at chapter 10. Because he gives us, a, in a sense, he's given the Corinthian church a warning. And then he applies it. He uses an illustration, an example. And then he applies it in a practical way. And at the end of 10, he leaves us with a principle. A priority for all of our lives. And so it's really a great teaching chapter. And one of the things I love about the Bible is Paul wrote this over 2,000 years ago to a church in Greece that we don't know, we've never known, we've never known a person who went to that church, a whole different culture, and yet here it is, we can still bring this letter, this teaching that Paul gave very specifically to the Corinthian church, and it's like, well, that applies to us. Well, there's some things we have to learn from that. I think that's just one of the evidences for me of the Bible being inspired by God. So he ends chapter 9, start with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize, run to win. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. 
They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That's the race we're in as Christians. Now Paul talks about himself. He's been sort of talking about a principle, and now he talks about himself. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul talks about the principle and he says if we're going to run the race, then run the race to win. I mean, why else do you run the race if it's not to win? to finish, to cross the line. And then he speaks about himself, and he says, I, I force myself in to go to strict training. It's painful at times. I push my body to do things that hurt. I'm sore. I'm out of breath. All of that. But I know that's what it takes to win, and I want to win the race. And he says that, that race isn't just about physical racing with our human bodies, that that principle, that concept applies to our spiritual lives as well. And that we as Christians need to run in such a way so that we will finish the race. We'll win. The danger, of course, and this is what Paul is warning the Corinthians about, because he saw them... And some of their behaviors, some of their conflicts, some of their priorities, pride, etc. He saw them say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. As if that took care of it. As if that, as if that was enough and what they actually did didn't matter. And Paul is challenging that and saying, you need to understand, you can run this race of faith and not finish. Not cross the finish line. Not win. And so you need to be careful not just to say, I signed up for the race, but to run in such a way as you finish the race, as you win the race. And that's his challenge for the Corinthians, and he's going to apply it in a couple specific ways. But Jesus, Paul is just echoing in many ways something Jesus himself said when he was on earth teaching. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Those two go together. My Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. With who? The one who loves me and obeys my teaching. And then he says, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And Jesus links those same two concepts together that Paul is linking together. It's not enough to just claim to have faith, to wear the title Christian. Paul says we have to not just wear that title, we have to run the race. Jesus says, you need to listen to me. You need to listen to what I call you to do, to what I ask you to be. You need to act that faith out. Because that's what shows the Father and I that you mean it, that you're sincere in that faith. And that's what Paul is challenging this divided church to see. We've seen and we'll see in the coming weeks, there was a lot of pride in the Corinthian church about what they could do, what spiritual gift they had, what spiritual knowledge they had. 
And their goal was, look at what a great Christian I am. But what Paul is challenging them to see is that's not enough to just focus on me and the proof that I'm this great super Christian. Paul challenges them in that. He says, you need to be careful to run the race in such a way as you win. The next thing Paul does is he uses, a, a, I call it a case study or an example out of the Old Testament to prove the principle he's just given them. And he uses the nation of ancient Israel. He begins in chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. And then he goes on, if you read the next uh, verses 1 through 4, he talks about all of these wonderful, miraculous experiences Israel got to see and participate in. That under the cloud is a reference to how for 40 years God led them through Sinai with a fire at night and a, and a cloud during the day. And they all got to live that way for 40 years. And the other reference in verse 1 is, is when God divided the Red Sea and Israel could escape from Egypt. And then brought the Red Sea back and destroyed Pharaoh's army. And he says, now, the, those people in Israel, they saw this firsthand. They had such a privileged status. And yet, they wasted it. If you look down in verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And he goes on through verse 11, listing all of the ways Israel was actually destroyed by their disobedience and their rebellion. And the point Paul is trying to make is that they had all of this privileged status. They were God's select chosen people. And they had seen all of these miracles firsthand. And yet, their behaviors, how they ran the race is they wasted it by their disobedience, their worshiping idols, all these things they did wrong, so that God ended up destroying them. And he says, what I'm warning you about is real. It happened to the nation of Israel. Don't let it happen to you. He, if you go down to verse 11 and 12, Paul says, all of this happened as an example to teach us. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. We've gotten Jesus. We've gotten the Messiah. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you're feeling super overconfident in how spiritual you are, watch out. Because you could be in danger of making the same mistake Israel made and wasted their privileged status. We need to listen to Jesus and live out what he asks us to do. Now we know we can't earn our way to, to heaven. And I think that's what makes it tough for us to sort of balance this out. We can't, we can't be good enough, but yet we need to live this out. We need to be sincere in our faith. It needs to affect our actions. 
How, does that, how, how do we stand a chance of that happening? Well, Paul, at, in verse 13, gives one of the great promises of Scripture. A lot of people memorize this. I'm sure some of you have. I have. Because it's such a powerful promise. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, you will also provide a way, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's a lot of encouragement in there. Paul says, I know running the race is at times painful. Being that faithful Christian, trying to live out what Jesus asks us to do, at times that's very hard. But Paul says, even though it's hard for you, understand it's no harder for you than it is for anybody else. And we need to hear that. Because there's times for each of us that we get into situations where we convince ourselves we are facing way worse than anybody else has ever faced. It's so painful. It, it is so hard to keep running the race. And we start to say, I, shoo. And it is sort of a backwards kind of encouragement to say, no, God says, I will not let you get picked on by Satan worse than anybody else. Now, that doesn't do a lot, but there is some kind of comfort in that. That what I'm facing, others have had to face before. But the greater promise comes in the second part of the verse. Where Paul, and oh, I need to go back and say, no temptation has overtaken you. The word in Greek can be translated two ways, and both are legitimate translations. One is temptation, and the other is testing. And in a sense, those two go together. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word temptation, I think of that being Satan sending something to tra trip me up, trap me. Which, that's, that's genuine, that's real. Testing, I think of something that may come from God who tests our faith. It's interesting that the Greek word can go both ways. And the truth is, temptation is testing. And testing is a temptation that we give up, that we quit. So either way, in a sense, either source, whether it's coming from God stretching us, testing us, or it's coming from Satan trying to trip us up, the, the promise that Paul gives us is that God is faithful. We can count on Him. Any situation, any day, any life, God is faithful. And He will limit what we have to face. Either how hard the test is or how much Satan can go after us. In the story of Job, God puts limits around what Satan can do to Job. That's the promise here, that God will do that for us. And God knows what we can handle. And so when it feels like we can't do another lap, another mile of the marathon, God says, I won't ask you to do a marathon longer than you can run. Now, if you're like me, you'll have lots of arguments with God at that point. God, you have way overestimated me. I cannot do another mile. And that's where it, <laughs> I, there's no answer other than 
You've got to trust his promise. He says you can. And you try and keep running. But his promise is that he will be with us. And when we are in this situation where we're like, I can't finish this race. I can't do this. God says, if you trust him, he will provide a way out. He'll help you. Whatever you need to be able to finish, to run the race, to hang in there, to face the challenge, the test, the temptation. If we look to him and look to his strength, his help, his wisdom, he said, I'll take care of you. I'll be with you. I'll provide a way out for you. We all face that. And Paul says, we as Christians, the Corinthians, the ancient Israel, had they kept their eye on God, they could have crossed the wilderness and taken the promised land and not had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. But they took their eyes off God. They didn't depend on Him. And that's the warning that Paul is giving to the Corinthians and us. Now, after that, Paul goes into the specifics. It's like he's been talking general principles, and now he wants to apply it to something he knew the Corinthians were doing. And he actually has three teachings, three applications we're going to look at real quick. First of all is idolatry. If you look down in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now, the, the truth is they were Christians in a city and a culture and a time that was full of idols. Everybody had multiple idols. We've talked in earlier sermons, the main deity of Corinth was Aphrodite. So there was a huge temple of Aphrodite on the, on the mountain behind Corinth overlooking the city. But in the marketplace, you would be able to buy just tons of idols of all shapes and sizes, all deities... And most people in that day, most of them in the sense of what they'd come out of, remember that all of them were converts. All of them had grown up in homes non-Christian. This was first generation Christianity. And they would have grown up in homes where there were idols in niches all around the house. Because you had different idols for different issues. If it was health, you had an idol. If it was the crop or your career, you had an idol. If it was all, whatever it was, you had an idol. And that was normal. And so you can see how it would be so easy for them to fall back into idolatry. Some immediate problem comes, I, let's talk to that idol. Or they visit a friend's house, a neighbor's house, and there's the idols. It was easy for them to get pulled back into idolatry. And he says, don't do it. Don't do it. You have committed your life to Christ. Don't fall back to those idols. Let's read verses 19 through 21. Do I mean that a food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You see, the real issue isn't the idols. Because Paul says, idols aren't real. 
So we know that, that that idol is a piece of stone or a piece of wood made by a human. That idol's not real. But what that idol is, he says, is that that idol is a tool of Satan, a demon, designed to come between you and God because that's ultimately what Satan is always working towards. Separate us from God, just like he separated Adam and Eve in the garden. And his warning is those idols matter, not because they're real, they're not. But Satan uses them to come between you and God. They're a demon. And that's why you don't mess with them. Don't go there. Because they will pull you away from God. The second thing he talks about, I entitle this, the next two points, groceries and your neighbor. Let's first of all read verses 25 and 6, and then I'll explain it. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, I need to explain a practice because if you're just reading along and you're a typical modern American in 2019, you're going to say, what in the heck is he talking about? Here's what was going on. It was a common practice. You have these animals brought to these pagan temples for sacrifices. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to burn an animal that was alive just previously, but on the farm, it's, we had to do that for dead animals, and it's not easy. You can't do it. I mean, you take so much wood to burn a cow, it's just unbelievable. They didn't even try. What they would do, their actual practice was, they would kill the animal, they would take a small piece of that animal, and they would put that on the fire, and that was burning that animal up, giving it to their deity. The rest of the animal was butchered and became meat. Meat for the priests and everybody who worked at the temple to eat, but you had way more meat than the temple employees could use. So you opened Aphrodite Meat Market. I'm being a little sarcastic here but the temple opened its own meat market in the market and so you could go there and get this discount meat that you knew had actually been given as a gift to this goddess well that became a very contentious issue in the christians because some would say you can't touch that meat that meat was given to a goddess and if you eat that meat you're supporting that goddess. And of course, other Christians said, are you kidding? That goddess is nothing. That goddess is a piece of stone. This is just a T-bone. Would you just shut up? I want my steak. And, 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 and just leave me alone. Because they knew, and Paul says here, that that goddess is nothing. And it didn't mean you went to the temple to worship. It didn't mean anything other than you bought a steak in the market, but you bought it from that meat stand. Well, that was pretty divisive. But Paul says here, if your conscience isn't bothering you, if you don't feel like eating this meat is in some way supporting Aphrodite or another goddess or God, go ahead and eat it. It's just a piece of meat. And that was speaking right into one of the conflicts in the Corinthian church. Because some of them were saying, oh, no, no, you can't do that. And they were judging each other of where you bought your meat. But then, he says there's one exception to that. In general, eat the meat. 
we know the God or goddess is nothing. But go back one more time, verses 27 through the beginning of 29. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Don't go to your neighbor's house and say, where'd you buy this meat? Just eat it. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice. So your neighbor says, guess where I bought the meat? As he puts the steak on your plate. Then don't eat it. Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. So you start to picture what Paul says might happen. If you've let your neighborhood know that we're now Christians, we're the followers of Jesus, and we don't go to these other temples, and your neighbor invites you over. And partially to see what you're going to do, the neighbor says, guess where I bought the meat? And is very clear it came from an idle meat market. Then um, Paul says, you're being tested. You're being watched. And you stand with Jesus. And you say, I have nothing to do with those temples, and I'd rather not meet to eat. Eat the meat. Can you pass the vegetables? Because Paul says, if you're being watched, if someone's checking you out, if you're really committed to Jesus, if you're really running the race, then you need to run the race. Now, if it's just you buying your meat, we know it doesn't mean anything. Buy the meat. You're not sinning. But if someone's testing your sincerity of your faith and your commitment to Jesus, then you need to stand with Jesus. Now, Paul ends with a principle. And in some ways, it's the most important thing out of the whole chapter. If you go down to verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. What you do shouldn't cause someone else to sin, shouldn't hurt their faith. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And that's one of Paul's guiding principles. In chapter 13, he will talk about it as agape love. But it is this concept that we're not in this for me. We're not in this for ourselves. We are to be like Jesus. And he came and lived and died for what we needed, what was good for us. And he says that's the principle that needs to guide us as we live our lives. That we, how will this impact my co-workers, how will this impact those people watching me? How will my neighbors who know I go to church and they don't, if they see me do this, how will this affect them? That we need to be asking ourselves those questions because that's what it takes to run the race to win. We're not in it for how we can appear as super Christians or the titles we have to wear. We are in this like Jesus 
to love others and help others and live in a way that will draw them to Christ. They will see us like Jesus, humble servants, washing feet, serving, helping, caring. That's what they need to see in us. Because that's what will bring them to Christ. That's what will help them find their salvation, their faith. And that's his call to us. That's how to run the race in such a way to win. Would you pray with me, please? Father, this race is not easy. We see the struggles. We have our own struggles. We would just ask you to help us. We count on you being faithful and being with us, limiting the challenges that we face. Please help us, each of us. In your son's name.